The Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington. Father in heaven, we are uh, again grateful that you have uh, restored life to us, given us life this day. We thank you for the new life that you brought into this world. We uh, bless you, Lord, because you have proven your love to us once again by giving us children. We thank you for that. And we pray that as we open up your word and as we seek to understand it in its historical context and its an eternal meaning, we pray, Father, that you, by your Spirit, would enlighten us, that we might know Yeshua, that we might walk in his footsteps and follow him. So bless us to that end, we ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. Let's just read. Uh, let, uh, let me read for you so we get the context here of uh, chapter 3. We'll read the first first 11 verses. Now in those days, Yochanan Hamatbil, John the Baptist, came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that even from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me... I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. All right. So, fairly familiar passage to us, I think, most of us who grew up reading the Gospels time and time again. But the question is, what does it mean? And we have... uh, uh, just to remind ourselves, last week we went through a very quick overview of what the kingdom of heaven might be. But how could we sum it up in, in a couple of sentences? The kingdom of heaven is the rule of God among men in which he brings them unto himself and through them causes his name to be sanctified. And here's the final uh, part so that his, pro- his covenant promises to Israel are realized. So the kingdom of heaven is the rule of God upon earth, but it can never be separated from the kingdom that he initially, uh, and con- initially established and continues to establish as his rule amongst his covenant people. I'm more and more convinced that as we read the scriptures, the, the covenant Fulfillment, the covenant realization, always has Israel in mind. And it's hard for us to get over uh, the latent 
well, I guess I could say anti-Semitism, but the latent supersessionism or replacement theology that all of us who have a familiarity in the Christian church were, were brought up with, even though we may not have, it may not have been explicitly stated. Um, and I, I realize more and more how the most difficult aspect of theology for the emerging Christian church has really never left us. And that most difficult point of theology is simply, how can God bless a people who has rejected his son? For if we, if we consider Israel as a whole, Israel as a nation, we have to say that in large measure, except for a remnant, she has rejected the Messiah Yeshua. How then can God continue to hold favor for a nation that has demonstrated her unwillingness to accept the Messiah? And uh, the answers to that question became, I think, the warp and the woof of early emerging Christianity in the second and third centuries. And it never really has left us. There's some part of that that we still cringe at to think that we should call those Israelites, those Jewish people who have not received Yeshua, that we have some covenant connection with them nonetheless. Now, how is it possible? Is it possible that darkness can have fellowship with light? See, that's the dilemma. Um, And so the kingdom of God, as as I'm coming to understand it, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, never loses sight of God's covenant faithfulness to Israel. And any time that we think that we can demonstrate or appreciate the kingdom of God, apart from his eternal covenant promises that he made to a physical uh, offspring of, of Jacob, we have missed an essential part of the kingdom of God. To whatever extent the church, and I'm using that in the broadest sense, whatever, in every way the church says that she has replaced Israel, to that extent she has misunderstood the kingdom of God. So, I mean, that's, uh, that's radical. That viewpoint is radical. And I wouldn't think that very many people would necessarily agree with it. Uh, that is, uh, modern theologians, but um, I see no other way to explain eventually how Paul comes to take the words of Yeshua, which we're studying here, and the story of the Gospels, and weave them together with the expression of the Gentiles, which he was fully aware of, that is, the Gentiles who have come to faith, and how he says this was revealed to him. Right In Ephesians 3, Ephesians 4, he says something that was not formerly known was revealed to the prophets and the apostles in the last days. Namely, uh, that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs and, and co uh, uh, together with. He uses all of those together verbs in Ephesians 2 and 3. And the only thing that we can conclude, I think, from Paul's... Uh, expression of this as God revealed it to him was that Israel is still the locus or the focal point of God's covenant faithfulness and that whenever uh, people come to faith in the Messiah, they join a remnant which has history back to Abraham, which has history, of course, back to Adam and Chava as those who are in each generation those of true faith.
um, if we if we accept a different theological viewpoint than that, we have to uh, admit that the scriptures don't fit in some points in relationship to how God saves people. Question or comment? I I chose that word specifically because it is broad enough. Israel is the name of an individual, first of all, because Yaakov's name was changed to Israel. And so when you have the children of Israel, you have essentially 12 or 13 sons, counting Joseph's sons that that, uh, Israel adopted. And um, from them came tribes, and from them came a nation. And that nation is the physical, earthly expression of God's kingdom of heaven. It has not always been a very good expression, but it is nonetheless the expression. And what Paul seems to indicate to us, well, I would be stronger. What Paul teaches us is that the Gentiles who are chosen from the nations are joined to this nation, which has its roots back to Abraham. And that Abraham is the father of all who believe. He is likewise the father of those who are physical descendants of Jacob who have not yet believed or who have not believed. So there's, we have it on two levels. But nonetheless, um, he's, not, he's not asking us to live on two levels. He's asking us to live with our feet on the ground. And that means that we have a connection to Israel. And the fact that 2,000 years has separated us from the synagogue is, on the one hand, unfortunate, on the other hand, inevitable. But it doesn't change the fact that we have a connection to a group of people who have maintained an identity. And that connection is because all of us, whether we have physical lineage to Jacob or not, uh, the reality is, is that those of us who have faith in the Messiah are connected because of God's choosing to a nation which is to exemplify the kingdom of heaven. And that's why any form of anti-Semitism is entirely contrary and against what the apostles teach about the kingdom of heaven. How ludicrous, excuse me for the strong terms, but how ludicrous for the church to constantly intone, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, when in many cases that kingdom is entirely devoid of Israel in their thinking, in their prayers, in their hopes, and in their, in their thoughts for the future. But that's clearly not what Yeshua had in, in mind when he said, I come to the lost sheep of, of Israel. That was his focus. And uh, if we get to it tonight, which I hope we will, you know, the, the, in, in, uh, in verse 9 of chapter 3, Yochanan gives us, a passage of scripture that has regularly been used to displace Israel. We're going to find that Matthew is regularly used to displace Israel in the theology of many of, of, the, of the Christian teachers. Larry. Okay, the, the comment is made about Romans 9, 6, where, where Paul says not everyone descended or not everyone of Israel is Israel, where it is a beautiful example of the word Israel used in two different ways, of an individual and of those who, because of their connection to that individual, constitute a nation called Israel. And not everyone descended from Israel is Israel. And Paul goes on to explain that by giving us a very good example. Ishmael and Isaac, right? Jacob and Esau, 
Okay, so he says, not everyone that has physical lineage to Abraham necessarily constitutes part of the nation. So what does constitute part of the nation? You know, and that, that is the point that Paul is eventually going to make to us in the, in the couple chapters later where he says, just because they have been broken off, just because the branches do lay dormant on the ground because the, the vine dresser or the orchardman has locked them off because they're not bearing proper fruit, he has the ability to graft them back in if he wants to. So don't be arrogant against the branches. Remember, the root supports you. You don't support the root. In other words, you, everyone, has been, by God's grace, grafted into this nation, therefore given covenant uh, blessings, and we stand on the basis of his grace and not on the basis of anything that we do. And so that's the very message that Yochanan's giving to these Sadducees and Pharisees when they come out to get baptized, when they come out to do a mikvah, as we'll see. All right. Uh, other comments? Yeah. The comments made that in, in the local church, generally speaking, it's, it's well recognized that people that regularly gather and perhaps even members, uh, some, some may be saved and some may be faking it. And that seems to not bother uh, leaders of Christian churches, but they have a hard time thinking of Israel in that, in that same context of those that are comprised not only of the remnant, but of those who have not believed. All right, good, uh, good thoughts. All right, let's go to uh, verse 4 of chapter 3. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Uh, I mean, you know, when you first um, meet this guy in the Gospels, you're not really sure you want to meet him. I remember, uh, I remember very well I was walking with someone when I was in high school. I was walking downtown with an individual that well-known in our city, and... Um, <clears throat> Uh, older lady, and uh, we were confronted on the corner at the uh, stop sign. Uh, we were waiting for the light to turn so that we could walk, and we were confronted with Jesus people, so that puts me in that era. And uh, this person came up and in a very kind, unassuming way said, uh, could I give you a small pamphlet that explains God's grace Jesus' love, and how you could become one of his children. And um, this person was clearly a hippie of the 60s. Okay, He had hair down past his waist. Uh, he had sandals on. He had overalls. And I don't think he had, I think he had overalls on. No, no shirt underneath the overalls. And he was not very clean, physically clean. And this person that I was walking with said, why don't you cut your hair? Why don't you take a bath? And then when you do that, come back and talk to me about God. And we walked on. Now, this person was pretty well known in the city as someone who was a Christian teacher and believer. And at the time, it kind of put me off because, of course, I was, you know, I was in high school during the 60s. So I, uh, I thought, OK, you know. So so what? When I got to college, the, of course, I was in college during the uh, early 70s. Uh, the same thing happened where we, we would go from our college, which was in Ohio, Cedarville University. We would go some few miles over to this most hippie of places called Yellow Springs and Antioch College. And uh, th- that was uh, progressive. I mean, they had hippies in the 50s, so they were way ahead of all the rest. 
And we would tr- sit down on the grass and try not to become intoxicated with the fumes that were being, um, <laughs> uh, being generated. And we would talk to the people. Uh, this was several of us from, uh, from the philosophy class. We would talk to the people about our philosophy and how it interacted with what they believed, and we would eventually try to interweave the gospel into this. And as a result, God was pleased to save numbers of these young people. And when they said, "Where now what should we do? I said, well, you need to get into a church that, uh, where you can grow. You know? And so we had numbers of churches in the area that we thought would be beneficial for them. And uh, I was chagrined to find out that none of these churches would let them in. Why? Well, says it's a disgrace for a man to have long hair. When you cut your hair, you can come back. Uh, you know, you need to conform. If you don't conform to our standards, you can't come. Well, I understand that there's some standards that, you know, one would, okay, I could understand that at this point in my life. But at the time, I thought, that doesn't seem right. Can't we find some way for these people? And, you know, these they were taking it on the chin on this campus because they were ridiculed and made fun of and, you know, which probably was good for them in terms of, so what would have happened if we'd have met this John the Baptist? I think he was way out of the mold, even for first century. You know, the very fact that Matthew gives us this description of his clothing tells us this different. If he was just a common guy, we wouldn't have heard anything about what he ate or what he wore. But it says that he wore camel's hair and a leather belt, and that his food was locusts and wild honey. Isn't it amazing that sometimes the way God uses prophets is he makes them different? So the, the message, we need to hear the message from people who have a message to tell. From, from this point on, Matthew refers to Yochanan without the adjective, the baptizer. His familiarity among Matthew's, that is, John's familiarity among Matthew's readers, was sufficient along with the preceding context to warrant the shorter reference. The use of camel's hair for clothing is not widely attested in the sources. Apparently, some soft camel hair was used for luxurious clothing, but other than that, its use as a description for Yochanan's garments is most likely given to emphasize that he was clad in the most basic of attire. In other words, the kind of thing that most people wouldn't consider using for clothing. So it was probably readily available. Matthew is contrasting Yochanan with a later description of those who lived in king's palaces and wore expensive clothing. Yochanan lived in a self-sufficient manner, subsisting on what could be found in the desert itself. In this way, there may be a parallel to Eliyahu, to Elijah. In 2 Kings 1.8, we read the description of Elijah. He was a hairy man with a leather girdle about his loins. So maybe Yochanan wasn't all that hairy, but he put clothes on that made him appear that way. Matthew wishes us to see that Yochanan was a portend of the final days when Eliyahu would herald the final arrival of the Messiah, not as the suffering servant, but as the reigning king. So my suggestion is, is that already John, Yochanan, is dramatizing what Eliyahu would do. Maybe he thought in some ways this was the final coming, because we know later he says, tell me, are you the Messiah or should we wait for another? Right? When he's in prison. All right. Some have suggested that by locust is meant the fruit of the locust tree, that is the carob pod. But this is not supported either by linguistic evidence nor by probability. I see that a lot in messianic circles. And it's just, it's a bit of a folktale. The large grasshopper is still eaten by Bedouins to this day and are specifically noted to be kosher. We're not considered meat by the sages. So you can eat grasshoppers with milk, according to the sages. 
along with your uh, along with your locks, if you'd like. Wild, yeah, you could you can sprinkle them on your cereal. Yeah, very good. Um, you know, actually, what I was told was that what the Bedouins do is they, uh, you know, they fry them in oil until they're crisp, and then they crunch them up, and they're, it's like a, it's like a seasoning. They're salty, yeah, like bacon bits, right? Exactly. Wild honey is distinguished from the honey taken from hives that were tended by a beekeeper. It is not to be understood by these descriptions that he only ate these two foods but that these were a common part of his diet. The point is to cast Yochanan as living a simple and self-sufficient life. He was not out to bilk the masses of their offerings in order to amass personal wealth. And as the next verse indicates, his demeanor bespoke integrity and sincerity and as a result attracted the masses. You know, he's just, just opposite of the voices, many of the voices that we hear crying today in our society. Uh, just the opposite. He, he was unassuming, unattractive. Uh, you would not have followed him because he was a slick operator. No, it was his message and his integrity that won the masses. Then Jerusalem was going out to him in all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. It's not uncommon, by the way, to personify cities and regions in, in literature and in, in the Bible. Um, so... These cities are, are personified as though they're actually people going out. But it means, of course, the population of the city and the immediate surroundings. Judea broadens the geographical reference and the district of Jordan uh, broadens it even further, even though we would say the district of Jordan was in Judea. However, we see the, the thought of coming into the land at the same point as Israel initially entered at the time of the conquest. So when it says the di- district of Jordan, it means probably Transjordan on the other side of Jordan. Perea and that that region. So, in other words, there were those who were who were coming across into Israel the same way that Israel initially entered the land. That's where he was doing the mikvot in uh, in the Jordan. If later in the life of Yeshua the masses turn against him, here in the opening chapters the masses are receiving Yochanan's message and presumably anticipating the coming of the Messiah. He proclaimed. It seems to be a general phenomena that the people are easily persuaded by the message of the truth until they are led in another direction by their teachers. One could suggest that this is true whether the message is valid or not. That is, that the masses are generally naive and easily led this way or that. In other words, you bring a slick teacher in and he can make the people believe anything. They'll go this way, they'll go that way. Uh... But given the opportunity to, to assess the scriptures on their own, it is interesting to see how often people are ready to follow what appears evident to them and how just as easily they turn back to follow teachers who inform them that they need not obey what the scriptures plainly state. I don't know how many times uh, I have had the opportunity to go and speak in places that people were not yet accepting the message of Torah. And usually what I try to do is explain just what the Torah is and what its value is. And then I usually try to get something about Sabbath. Is, you know, most of us have seen that the Sabbath is a key issue that is the beginning point of people to ask questions. And so when you ask the people, you know where the verse is in the Bible that says that God changed uh, a day, the day of, of his uh, blessing from uh, the seventh day to the first day. Do you know where that that passage is? And they're thinking, and you know, the, you can tell the people that are the 
kind of the studiers, they're going, I'm sure I know where that is, where is that, you know. And when you finally explain to them, well, no, there is no such passage. And then when you show them that, that not only did Yeshua and his apostles regularly uh, keep the Sabbath, but that the prophets talk about the return of the Messiah in a millennial reign, and the Sabbath is being kept then as well. And then you ask, well, so, so why don't we keep the Sabbath today? <laughs> okay, yeah, it's the church age. Many, many times I've seen people go, wow, never thought of it, didn't think of it. You know, I'd have them say, you know, I really have to give this some thought. Look what the Bible says about the Sabbath. Only to find out three weeks later that the preacher has come and told them, no, look, it's, you don't have to worry about that stuff. It, you, know, you, you don't know enough to interpret the Bible the way it's supposed to be interpreted. But believe me, if you were to do that, you'd have to kill your neighbor when they, uh, when they didn't keep the Sabbath. And you'd have to stone your kids when they were rebellious. And you'd, you know, just believe me, that, you don't want to get back into that stuff. You know, and everybody says, okay, boy, that, that Tim Haig really threw me for a loop. I'm glad you straightened me out, Pastor. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just amazing to me how many times you see people very much willing and ready. And I think this is the case to a great extent, at least in the evangelical church, that, that there are a lot of people who genuinely want to love God, obey Him, and keep His commandments. I mean, it is in their heart to do that. They're not out saying, oh, let's just play this game and be fakes. I mean, there's a lot of people that are seeking to walk in a, in a holy, spiritual way before the Lord. And when they're, when, when they're given the scriptures and they look at them and they make perfect sense, they're ready. Their hearts are already saying yes to God. Now, when they see the scriptures, they want to say yes to God. So you get the feeling here that at the beginning of the story, Yochanan, everybody's coming out. It's like, wow, everybody's for this. It's not going to be too long, though, the masses, right, are going to turn against him and against the one that he came to announce, that is Yeshua. Okay, a few questions. Ken. Mm-hmm. Uh, Isaiah, uh, the question is, where in the, uh, in the millennial passages, those passages which are usually interpreted as millennial, do we have the Sabbath? We have it in Isaiah 56 and Isaiah 58. And all of those would be considered to be uh, millennial passages by anyone who believes that there is a millennium. We have the same thing going on in Zechariah 14 where the nations go up and worship God at Sukkot. And we know that Sukkot is a Sabbath. Both the first day and Shemini at Sarah, the eighth day, are, are Sabbaths. So they're, they're, they're not only uh, celebrating a festival, but they're also celebrating or they're taking the day and setting it apart as a Sabbath. So it, it even says in 58, or is it 56? I always get the two mixed up. Isaiah 58, I think. That even the foreigner who joins himself to the Lord and does not desecrate my covenant but keeps the Sabbath... You know, so for, I'd see the 56 or 58. So 56, okay. Thank you. So uh, it, it, it even goes beyond. I mean, here's the, the, the covenant uh, in Exodus 31. The sign of the covenant is what? The Sabbath. It shall be, the Sabbath shall be a sign between me and between you throughout all your generations. Right? So Exodus 31 is, a, is the sign that the Sabbath is the sign of God's covenant with Israel. And in 50, Isaiah 56, the Sabbath that is kept by the foreigner who joins himself to the Lord enters into that same blessing. So I think it's very interesting that Isaiah says joined himself to the Lord because that's the key. That, that is the point, is that if you, if, you are, um, if you join yourself to the God of the covenant, you become a member of the covenant.
that's in fact how you become a member of the covenant by joining yourself to the Lord. And we might talk further about, well, how does one join himself to the Lord? But that's the language that Isaiah uses. Okay. Was there another question or comment? Yeah, Larry. Right. Yeah, the point is being made that um, there are a couple of, there are actually two scriptures in the apostolic uh, portions that relate to the first day of the week. And uh, one is that Paul asked them to gather money on the first day of the week. There's nothing there that says that they met together, only that they gathered money on the first day of the week. And you have uh, one other reference in Acts where they're meeting on the first day of the week. But that happens to be the time when Eutychus falls out of the out of the window because Paul preaches past midnight. So I don't think it's so the first day of the week would be would start what we would call Saturday evening after Havdalah when they would meet. The Gentiles would then be able to come. They had to work probably if they were slaves. They didn't get the day off. So after the after the workday was done, they showed up. And they probably ate together. And it was then that all of everything that happened during that Sabbath with regard to the synagogue teaching and, and the Torah portion that was read and so forth would be related to the Gentile brothers and sisters in the Lord. And Paul went on and on and on. And uh, Eutychus fell asleep and fell out of the window. So those are the only, those are the only two times. The one time in Corinthians he doesn't even say that you're to gather, get together. You're not even meeting together. You're just gathering funds which you wouldn't have wanted to do on the Sabbath anyway. And the one in Acts is obviously at the end of the Sabbath. So we, have not, we don't have one instance where you have the followers of Yeshua meeting on Sunday morning for worship. I'm not saying that they couldn't have. That's the other thing is that we think, well, if they met on Sunday, they certainly wouldn't have met on Saturday. I mean, twice in a week? Are you kidding me? But... Um, yeah, but uh, we know that the book of Acts tells us that initially they met every day, right? And they continued to meet in the in the precincts of the temple. And so, uh, yeah, there's it's it's really pretty evident that it, it it waits until the emerging Christian church of the second third centuries and the, and their need to identify themselves as unique and separate from the synagogue. And if you were to ask yourself, what was the, if, if you were a foreigner v- visiting the land of Israel in the first century, you had no idea. Maybe you were from India or maybe you are from wherever, Africa. You had no idea that Jerusalem even existed or that there was a temple, all this. And you were to ask somebody in Jerusalem, what, what, what characterizes a Jew? How would you know a Jew? What would they have said? Well, they would have said that they're people that worship at this temple. They strictly keep the Sabbath and other days. There are certain foods that they don't eat. Those would have been the three top things that would have been said. And that they separate themselves from uncleanness. So if you want to, if you want to make sure that nobody mistakes you for a Jew, you know, you, you make sure you're visibly working on the Sabbath. That that would be the way to do it, and that's undoubtedly what the uh, emerging Christian church wanted to do, was separate herself from any connection with the synagogue at a certain point. And the best way to do that was not to meet on the Sabbath, to meet on another day. This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, and from a Messianic perspective. 
The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit torresource.com. Verse 6 on page 97. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. On the question of the mikvah, we've already talked about that, but the question is often asked, what role did Yochanan play in the ceremony of the mikvah in the Jordan River? Traditionally, one goes into the mikvah without assistance, while the text before us appears to indicate that Yochanan was active in the sense of plunging or dipping the people into the water. However, the Greek does not necessarily require this. The verb is a middle form, for those of you that have studied some Greek, meaning that it could just as well be understood as they were baptizing themselves. If this is the case, then we would understand the following by him to mean under his supervision, which would conform to the tradition that required witnesses of a mikvah in order for it to be considered valid. That the mikvah in ancient Israel pertained to more than ritual purity, but also included the intention of one's heart, has been discussed above. Thus, the mikvah administered by Yochanan, which is here connected to the confession of sins, is not, contrary to some commentators, an innovation on the part of Yochanan. Indeed, the words of the prophets that connect the imagery of the mikvah with repentance and renewal would have formed obvious parallels in the minds of those coming to the Jordan. Ezekiel 36 Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. So that last phrase makes it clear that the filthiness is not physical dirt, that it has to do with uh, an uncleanness of the heart. Uh, Moreover, the renewal of Israel in the end of days incorporates the metaphor of water in connection with pouring out of the Spirit. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So the, the pouring out of water and the pouring out of the spirit is clearly connected. Since the common practice of doing a mikvah was in view of visiting the temple precincts, it only stands to reason that it was likewise connected to one's desire to worship and honor the God of Israel. In other words, if you knew that if you were going to go up to the temple, you were going to take a mikvah. That was just part of it. So mikvah and visiting the temple all almost always went hand in hand. Not that you only did a mikvah when you went to the temple, but whenever you did go to the temple, you knew that a mikvah was was going to be undertaken. As Yochanan announced the soon appearance of the Messiah, it was only natural that those who heard and received his message would want to prepare themselves both in terms of ritual purity as well as one's inner life. If I prepare myself for going up to the temple, how much more would I prepare myself, and in similar ways, for the coming of this kingdom, for this Messiah? The present participle, which means to confess. Now, you all know enough about present participles. It means something that you're doing while the action is happening. But it does not need to indicate that they were confessing their sins as they were performing the mikvah. In other words, was this the first confessional to a priest? No. Its primary emphasis is that the confession of sins was vitally linked with the performance of the immersion. In other words... In their mode of saying, I want to confess my sins before God, they said, a mikvah is an appropriate uh, response to that. Nor does the participle necessitate that they were publicly confessing their sins, their personal sins, or that they were confessing their sins to Yochanan. Rather, their performance of the mikvah was itself the public demonstration of their confession. You know, in in a few verses here, we're going to see that the Pharisees and the Sadducees come. You know, doing public 
things is a two-edged sword. It, it can look as though you're pious, but everybody knows you've sinned, right? Same thing was true with bringing your sacrifice. If you were bringing a guilt offering to the temple, you know, and your friend saw you say, oh, you're bringing a thank offering? Uh, if you said yes, you would be proven wrong soon because the guilt offering, you didn't get any of it, and the thank offering, you did. So if anybody was standing around and you gave them the sacrifice, you didn't get anything back, guess what? It's not a thank offering, it's a guilt offering. So everybody's thinking, what did he do? Right? You know? Oh, you stole something? Oh, you, you know, what did you do here? So you could understand, on the other hand, if, if people knew you and they never ever saw you bring a sacrifice, what are they thinking? You, you're not honest. You're not honest with God. Right? You're not very religious. You're not very pious. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword when the Pharisees and the Sadducees come out to Yochanan to do a mikveh. What does this mean? They're confessing their sins. But they're supposed to be these pious people that don't have sins to confess. But, you know, public confession of sins is not easy, right? At least, I think naturally it's not easy. It's not easy to stand up and say, I failed. Especially it's not easy to do it if you're a leader. Because people expect leaders not to fail. And in some measure, they have right expectations on that. A leader is, is to be someone who generally has not failed in his life and is able, therefore, to, to lead the people in the direction they're supposed to go. So when a leader stands up and says, I want to express to you how deeply I've been engrossed in sin for the last 10 years, everybody might say, well, it's wonderful that you're confessing, but we'd like a different leader. So as a result, leaders have even more pressure not to confess their sins openly. By the way, it's not, not that we need to confess all of our sins openly. That's not the point, right? There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Messiah Yeshua, okay? So if you confess your sins, he is faithful. But if we sin against somebody, we're to go to them, and we're to make that right. So that's semi-public, okay? And if we've sinned in such a way that we have sinned against innumerable people, then we have an obligation to do our best to make our confession as public as possible. So uh, the, as wide as the sin is as wide as the confession should be. And no wider. There's no need to stand up and uh, beat myself uh, in front of everybody in hopes that you'll think I'm pious, more pious than the next guy. That, that's not what confession is about. Question. Yeah. You know, the point is being made that one can't really know one's heart. You have to receive one's words and you have to receive them as sincere. How do we know when confession is not sincere? When the person goes back to doing what they had said they were sorry for. Okay. Moreover, in the language of the Torah, in which wayward Israel is promised God's faithfulness to the covenant, the language is striking. This is Leviticus 26, 40 through 42. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled, so that they then make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land. In other words, here is Israel in the first century under the demise and the heavy hand of Rome. And what can they only presume as is the result, uh, or, the, or the cause of that, I should say? Well, it's their own sin. So if they're studying the Torah and reading the Torah all the time and they come to Leviticus, it says, if you will confess your sins and the iniquities of your forefathers, 
Do you think that that's maybe what they were doing as they went out to the Jordan? I think it's very possible that they were trying to lead the nation in this, in this national confession of sin to say, if we want God's blessing upon us, we have to get it, get it straight. As the people listened to Yochanan and realized that the Messiah was close at hand, they may well have connected Yochanan's message with that of Moses and realized that confession of their iniquities was the necessary requirement for God's returned blessing upon them. Moreover, confession of sin is specifically commanded in the Torah in connection with making the proper restitution for one's error. Yeshua himself taught that the giving of a sacrifice was moot if one knew that he had sinned against his brother and had not followed the Torah in making restitution. Rather, one was to forego offering a sacrifice until the matter was right. In other words, the rituals involved in worship were to be preceded by a cleansed heart and conscience, which means doing confession of sin. Taking all of these factors together, Yochanan's call for repentance and his administration of the mikvaot in the Jordan fit well into the Judaisms of his day. From Qumran, we know that at least some of the Judaisms were expecting the imminent arrival of the final redemption. As such, it is reasonable to presume that many were preparing themselves in light of these expectations. That the Torah required confession of their iniquities and the iniquities of their forefathers to occur before restoration to covenant blessings could be achieved. Confession of their sins in connection with Yochanan's call to repentance makes perfect sense. It's not something new, you know, that we hear the commentator saying, oh boy, we never hear about this before, a mikvah with confession. I, I think it fits perfectly with the picture that uh, Moses gives us in light of John's a message of the soon coming kingdom. All right, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So not only did his breath probably smell, and you know, his clothes probably weren't all that fashionable, he, he lacked some people skills as well. As Yoganan encouraged and oversaw the mikvah of those who were receiving his call to repentance, many... In the Greek it says, of the Pharisees and Sadducees also came to the Jordan to participate. This paragraph is one of only three instances in Matthew where the Pharisees and Sadducees are linked together. More often, Matthew associates the Pharisees and the scribes together. You know, when we stop to try to unravel what was going on in the first century with regard to the various sects of Judaism, it's very difficult. The one thing that we want to guard ourselves from is that there were clear pigeonholes with all kinds of uh, you know, galvanized walls between them. Like the Pharisees were here and they never did anything with the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are here and they never did anything with the Essenes. It, it was not nearly as monolithic as that. We know that there were Pharisees whose daughters married sons of Sadducees. Okay? So when you stop to think about it, that would be like a Baptist marrying a Presbyterian. You know, as Tevia says, you know, where would they make their nest if a fish and a bird were to marry, right? I mean, in some ways, you, you feel the tension of that. Which tradition are they going to follow? And, but the, the, the um, Sanhedrin was made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees. So they had to come to some kind of, uh, of agreement on a regular basis with regard to how they were going to rule in terms of the temple and in terms of the halakha of the people. And that was the tension, wasn't it? I mean, the Sadducees basically controlled the temple. The Pharisees essentially controlled the people. And the Pharisees were the, were, were the sect of the commoners. You didn't have to be rich to be a Pharisee. Sadducees were all wealthy. They were the aristocracy. They had retained some 
some regal kind of uh, authority from the Hasmoneans because uh, the Hasmoneans usurped the uh, priesthood and the Sadducees were the uh, inheritors of that tradition. And so uh, they had to work together and they were constantly, they were like, uh, I hate to say it, but they were like Democrats and Republicans. In the same Congress, they kind of had to try to work together even though their ideologies were clearly different. Sometimes we see them joining together in order to, to gain a goal they both wanted. And uh, when, when Paul, as an example, when Paul wanted to go cause trouble for the uh, so-called Christians, as they were called in Antioch, what, to whom did he go for authority? He went to the Sadducees. He didn't go to the Pharisees. Why would the Sadducees have more authority? Well, because they were in connection with Rome. Rome liked had to be in cahoots with the Sadducees. Why? Because here's a, here's a large nation, and how do you tap the wealth in terms of a tax base from this large nation? You do it because they're all connected to the temple. When they come to the temple, they bring their gifts, they bring their offerings, and that's where you can get their taxes. And so you have to be in connection with the Sadducees and the Sadducees with Rome. So Rome would give them some leeway. The Sadducees had some power. They had the ability to maintain a police force around the Temple Mount. This was probably the, it was the temple uh, soldiers, the temple police force that was guarding the, the tomb of Yeshua. It wasn't Roman guards like you always see in the Sunday school papers. So um, they, they had some authority. They had some power. So sometimes the Sadducees and the Pharisees worked together. Sometimes they were at loggerheads. And we know, of course, that the Essenes, as if in fact that was the group out in the Dead Sea, the Essenes wanted nothing to do with either of them, which is why uh, they left and went out into the desert. I mean, they were the true separatists. So here we have the Sadducees and the, and the Pharisees coming, apparently at the same time. In Mark and Luke, the Sadducees are only mentioned one time, and that's in the connection uh, that they, they didn't believe in the resurrection, and never in connection with the Pharisees. Mark associates the Pharisees with the scribes three times and Luke five times, pretty much in parallel passages. It might be that Matthew's repeated mention of the Pharisees indicates the close connection of himself and his community with the Pharisaic sect, and thus a more insider's view of their practice, and especially the rejection of Yeshua's Messiah by the sect's prominent leaders. I think the reason we, sh we find Matthew so many times mentioning the Pharisees is because he was one. Maybe he was still one. And so he understood more from an insider's view. It's just like someone who grew up as a Baptist can say some things about Baptist doctrine that an outsider can't really say. Would he, would he be, have been accepted, uh, the question is, as a former tax collector? Well, it's a good question. Uh, maybe he gave up his, his, uh, his previous associations and became a Pharisee. In other words, when you became a follower of Yeshua... What, what group would you associate with? Somebody might say, well, you didn't need to associate with any. Well, that's true, but that would be like a, a, an independent voter in America. Your vote doesn't count. In other words, um, Paul continued to maintain his Pharisaism, even after he came, became a believer in Yeshua. There was no reason then why you couldn't be a Pharisee and be a follower of Yeshua. In fact, from what we can tell, Yeshua's method of argumentation and his viewpoint on things is very much aligned with the Pharisees more than any other group. Uh, good question. I'm not saying that he was a Pharisee, but it may be that at least he and his readers had a, a, a close familiarity with the Pharisaic sect. And for that reason, they had a, a little more bit of an axe to grind because they weren't doing what they should. Yes, go ahead. Right. The comments made that as a follower of Yeshua, 
um, he would have he would have associated with the uh, hoi polloi, with the common people, the am ha'aretz, rather than with the aristocracy. You're, you're right, uh, Craig. Right, right. The comment is being made in Acts 15 that at the Jerusalem Council you have those who are opting for circumcision as a necessity being called Pharisees. And you have the same thing, and well, it doesn't say exactly Pharisees, but in Acts 21 it says they were very zealous for the Torah, which is something that does characterize Pharisees. In fact, on page 99 in the sidebar, I give you a somewhat extended quote from Josephus and his uh, description of the Pharisees. And uh, in fact, we learn most about the Pharisees from Josephus. So, I'm just suggesting that there might have been a close connection with Matthew and his community with uh, the sect of the Pharisees. While Matthew regularly notes the Pharisaic opposition to Yeshua, it is clear that he does not dismiss them as altogether unrighteous. In chapter 5, verse 20, for instance, Matthew reports Yeshua's assessment that, quote, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, which would indicate to us that there is some benchmark Right of righteousness, which is held by the scribes and the Pharisees. Moreover, Matthew relates how Yeshua honored the authority of the Pharisees who sat in the seat of Moses, given credence to their role as teachers of the Torah, even though he warned his disciples not to follow the manner in which they themselves failed to live out their own instructions. Yet the majority of the time in Matthew's gospel, the Pharisee leaders are opposed to Yeshua and his teaching and plot against him, seeking to discredit him. At first, they wonder why Yeshua and his disciples are not conforming to their established halakha. That is, they're associating with the wrong people. Or they don't fast. You're supposed to fast twice weekly. Or to accept added restrictions on the Sabbath, like not plucking grain from the fields. Or they're eating without washing their hands, and the Pharisees wonder why that is. But as gospel unfolds, the Pharisaic leaders turn from questioning Yeshua's lack of halakha conformity to opposing him and seeking to discredit him. They accuse him of using satanic powers to cast out demons and conspire to destroy him as a result. Their plan was to trap him by asking questions that presented a no-win scenario. They ask him to provide proof of his greatness by manifesting a sign from heaven. When the rabbis, by the way, had probably already determined that a sign from heaven is nothing on the basis that Deuteronomy tells us the Torah is not in heaven that you have to go up to get it or out into the sea that you have to go out to find it. It's where? Near you, in your mouth and in your heart. We don't need signs. At least some of the Pharisees were teaching that. They seek to entangle him in the halakhic discussions regarding divorce. They likewise sought to embroil Yeshua in the controversy over payment of taxes to Rome. You know, these no-win situations. If you say pay your taxes, then we think that you're, uh, you're in, in uh, favor of Rome. If you say not to pay your taxes, then we think you're revolutionary and causing problems. So, you know, what can you do? And, of course, each time Yeshua shows his wisdom by pointing to their incredulity in terms of how they were asking the question in the first place. The Sadducees also test him by presenting a scenario that seemed sure to deter- undermine his teaching regarding the resurrection. Right? Such tactics, however, come to an end when Yeshua himself asked the Pharisaic leaders about the identity of the Messiah and how he could be the son of David, while at the same time revered by King David as his master. Remember? He said, um, whose son is the Messiah? And I said, well, the son of David. So, well, then how come David in the spirit calls him master? Quoting uh, Psalm 110.1. After this, the text tells us, No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. I take it to mean they they didn't dare from that point on to try to trap him 
in his teaching. It is clear then that while the Pharisees as a whole may have presented a worthy benchmark for attention to Torah observance, some of the leaders were nonetheless better known for their political prowess than their consistent lives of piety. This may be reflected in the rabbinic notice that marks seven kinds of Pharisees. In Mishnah Sota, chapter chapter 3, section 4, it speaks of the, quote, blows of the proshim, that is, the blows of the Pharisees. And the Gemara in the the Talmud expands on this. Our rabbis have taught there are seven types of Pharisees, the the Shikmi Pharisee, the Nikpi uh, Pharisee, the Kizeh Pharisee, the Pestle Pharisee, the Pharisee who constantly exclaims, what is my duty that I may perform it, the Pharisee from love of God, and the Pharisee from fear. The Shikmi Pharisee, he is the one who performs the action of Shechem. Uh, what is that? Remember, why did the men at Shechem get circumcised? So they could get a wife. That's the wrong reason to get circumcised. In other words, you, 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 you do the mitzvah in order to get something. You're not really doing the mitzvah. You're not doing the commandment for God. The, the Nikri Pharisee, he is the one who knocks his feet together, which is a way of saying he, he, he wants you to know how carefully he walks. He's always showing his piety. He's wearing his piety on his sleeve. The Kizay Pharisee. Rabbi Nachman ben Itzhak said, he is one who makes his blood to flow against the walls. That's meaning what? Meaning that he would, he would turn so quickly from looking at a woman that he'd beat his face into the wall. He wanted everyone to see how careful he was not to, uh, not, not to ever look at a woman, lest he would be thought of as being uh, uh, less than, than ethical. The Pestle Pharisee. Rabbi ben Shilah said, his head is bowed like a pestle in the mortar. He's always walking around with his head down so everybody will see how humble he truly is. The Pharisee who constantly exclaims, what is my duty that I may perform it? Someone, someone argues, wait a minute, that's a virtue. There's nothing wrong with that. Nay, what he says is, what further duty is for me that I may perform it? Meaning, look, I've done it all. There's nothing else I can do. I have maintained the Torah to its nth degree and I have nothing left to do. I'm perfect. The Pharisee from love and the Pharisee from fear, which means what? The Pharisee who, does, who lives according to the love he has for God and the fear he has for God. Now, only those last two, according to the Pharisees themselves who wrote the Talmud, are valid. All the others are Pharisees they wouldn't like to claim. In light of the fact that the Bavli was written and compiled by the remnant of the Pharisees, that is the basis for rabbinic Judaism, it is all the more remarkable that such clear denouncement of Pharisaic shortcomings are included. But we should understand that even the Pharisees themselves judged each other on the basis of sincere piety and condemned, as did Yeshua, outward actions of holiness that were not matched by inward piety. The words of Yochanan judging the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the Sadducees then are not something unfamiliar to the College of Sages. He knew that their coming to participate in the mikvah of Teshuvah was not consistent with their actions. Such religious fakery had no place in the kingdom of heaven, but besmirches the very essence of Teshuvah itself. Repentance is a humble admission of one's sin in light of the unchanging standard of God's holiness. What is more, the Messiah, who is the central focus in the coming kingdom, requires true holiness of heart, which inevitably produces evident obedience to God's commandments. Yochanan uses the phrase brood of vipers, literally offspring of vipers, used also by Yeshua in reference to the hypocritical leaders of the Pharisees. While the viper is poisonous, that is not the primary emphasis here. Rather, the viper lurks in unsuspected places and presents a real danger to those who might accidentally happen upon it. 
Interestingly, the rabbinic literature mentions the danger of snakes hiding in privies or latrines, a fitting picture of uncleanness and danger. In fact, there were some famous rabbis who made it a, a habit never to go to the latrine alone. I thought it was interesting that when you study snakes in the Talmud, um, it's related to some of the same kind of metaphor of something that hides, that lurks. Well, why would, the, why would he have been, why would Yochanan and Yeshua refer to the Pharisees as a brood of vipers? Well, because people don't realize it, but they're getting poisoned. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And he's not talking about the way they make their bread, right? As the text, we'll, we'll study that text down the road. Yochanan questioned the Pharisees and Sadducees. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, we could put the emphasis either on the word who, meaning, hey, who was it that told you? It wasn't me. Who else is telling this message? Or the emphasis could be upon you. Who warned you? Why? Well, because you would be the last people I would ever think would ever come out for repentance. Regardless, the point is that John's message of the imminent kingdom included a warning of the judgment that such a kingdom would render upon the unrighteous. Since these Pharisaic and Sadducean leaders doubtlessly projected a confidence in their status of righteousness, their coming was entirely out of character. Okay, verses 8 through 9. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Yochanan's admonition is straight to the point. True teshuva is marked not by mere outward ritual, and we would clearly say not merely by words, but by a turning from the sin as the initial fruit of repentance and then engaging in honest, humble obedience before God. When you Repentance is not simply turning from sin. It's turning unto righteousness. And really, you can't turn from sin unless you turn unto righteousness. If you're just trying to Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It didn't work. You'll always get drugged back down. The metaphor of fruit to indicate something that is the consequence or product of one's thoughts and decisions is common in the Tanakh. I've given you references over in the side margin. When one wishes to determine the nature of a tree, he looks not at the root but at the fruit. A lot of times all the roots look, look the same. Now, I know someone who's very skilled in in uh, forestry and so forth might be able to tell the difference in a root system, and root systems are different. But generally speaking... You look at the fruit, that's, a, that's absolutely how you can tell the difference between one tree and another. Yeshua will likewise utilize this metaphor in his teaching. Apparently, the prevailing theology of the Pharisees and Sadducees and most likely other Jewish sects was that physical lineage to Abraham, which granted covenant status, was the basis for a guarantee of God's blessing and protection and thus a place in the world to come. That is, escape from the final judgment against the wicked. We see this in Mishnah Sanhedrin 10.1. And I, I just want you to know there is a textual problem. Some of the, some of the uh, editions of the Mishnah don't have this phrase, which is very interesting. And I, haven't, I don't have uh, the ability at this point, I don't have the resources to run down the textual problem. But it is in, it is in a, a good number of the uh, manuscripts of the Mishnah, but it's missing in the Kaufman uh, edition. All Israelites have a share in the world to come, as it is said. Your people also are all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. If Isaiah 60.21 was, in fact, taught by the Pharisaic sages of Yoganon's day as the foundational text for trusting in one's Israelite status. Wait, well, I guess I should stop here and just ask. You understand that quote from the Mishnah? If you're an Israelite, you have a place in the world to come. On what basis? God has declared all Israel to be righteous. 
Isaiah 60, 21 says, all Israel is righteous. So, you're born a Jew, you're in. Unless, as the Mishnah goes on to say, you do some dastardly things in which you could get cut off from your people. But, generally speaking, if you don't do those dastardly things, and if you're an Israelite, if you're a Jewish person, you're in. And, of course, we know where that leaves the Gentiles. It means they have to become Jews to get in, from the rabbi's standpoint. So if this text was in fact taught that way, then it is all the more significant in light of Yochanan's call to bring forth fruit corresponding to repentance. For the righteousness of God's people, as prophesied by Isaiah, is parallel to God's having planted them in the land, with the idea that the work of the supreme husbandman would inevitably produce good fruit. In other words, bring forth the fruit if you're really planted by God, if you are the people that Isaiah is talking about, then you ought to be bring, bringing forth fruit. Of course, in the rabbinic understanding, one could forfeit one's covenant status through egregious sin, which would receive the penalty of karat, being cut off, as the remainder of the Mishnah quote above makes clear. Yet it seems quite certain that in the first century, and probably dating to times much earlier, the prevailing theology of Israel's sages was, the, was that covenant status given to every Israelite was the means by which one would escape the final judgment and be assured of a place in the world to come. From this, it is easy to see why the ritual of becoming a proselyte, by which a Gentile was accorded the status of an Israelite, was considered the only way into the covenant for Gentiles. Moreover, since circumcision was the primary and most significant element of the proselyte ritual, at least for males, it is understandable how the term itself became synonymous with covenant status. When some were teaching the Gentiles that, quote, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved, in Acts 15.1, it must be understood in light of the prevailing theology that accorded covenant status, that is, you became a son of Abraham, as the basis for right standing before God and a place in the world to come. So, that puts in a clear picture what was going on in Acts 15. Here are these Gentiles. How can they have salvation? How can they have the blessing of God? How can they have a place in the world to come? Only Israel has that. So, what do they have to do? They have to become part of Israel. How do you do that? You become circumcised. That was the issue. We tend to sometimes forget that when we read the rest of Acts 15. This also informs the perspective of Paul that one, believers in Yeshua are children of Abraham. Why would he even care about that? And number two, that those who rely upon circumcision, that is, Israelite status gained through becoming a proselyte, will inevitably be condemned. This is what he means when he says, if you become circumcised, you'll be estranged from the Messiah. Why? Because you're trusting in something that isn't going to give you salvation. You're trusting in your status as a Jew, which is what apparently the rabbis were teaching. So John says to them, sure, you can say to yourself, you're the seed of Abraham. Why, Why would he even bring that up? Well, because being the seed of Abraham was what they were relying upon for their salvation. But Yochanan has already judged these Pharisees and Sadducees who were coming to him as the offspring of vipers. So they're not the offspring of Abraham. (laughs) They're the offspring of snakes. That's pretty... Boy, that could almost be called anti-Semitic in our day. One's deeds give evidence of one's lineage. If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. To such a charge, they would have apparently retorted, we are Abraham's offspring. That is, we already are guaranteed God's favor. Yochanan's assessment is that their lives do not match their pedigree. Yochanan goes, goes on to say that God is able to raise up children of Abraham through a miraculous creative event. 
From these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. By the way, someone suggested that he actually was talking about the 12 stones that were uh, put on, at the Jordan where they crossed. Were they there that many years later? Um, who knows? Twice it says in the, in the historical text, Tanakh, it says that they're there until this day. So what, when this day is, I wouldn't say. But anyway, that's interesting. I don't think that's what he's saying, but maybe. The phrase to raise up from is, in, is a Semitic or Hebrew idiom meaning to cause to be born. The picture is of God giving rocks the ability to bring forth people. It was interesting to uh, work on that today, having had my uh, uh, latest granddaughter born this morning. The point is that God is not limited in terms of his covenant blessings to those who are the physical offspring of Jacob. Neither Yochanan nor Yeshua deny the rightful place of the physical offspring of Jacob to the covenant promises made to the fathers. But the point is that the covenant promises were never predicated entirely nor exclusively on the basis of physical lineage. Since Abraham is characterized by his having believed in God, those who are his offspring will likewise be so characterized. Those who participate in Abraham's faith will bring forth the deeds of Abraham, and this is the mark of covenant status, not merely one's pedigree. Furthermore, if one considers the manner in which Isaac, as the promised son, came, the emphasis of Yochanan upon God's miraculous ability to raise up offspring for Abraham is all the more poignant. For Isaac himself was the result of a miraculous move of God's hand whereby he overcame the inability of Sarah to conceive and gave her a son in her old age. This very point, using a similar metaphor, is made by Isaiah in chapter 51. Listen to me, he says, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, I called him. Then I blessed him and multiplied him. So we always consider this passage from Isaiah to be a mixing of metaphors. You know, he's talking about the birth, the miraculous birth of Isaac from Abraham and Sarah, but he's also saying you've been a rock that's been cut out of a quarry. Is it possible that John has both of these together? Look, in a very real sense, Abraham and Sarah were as rocks when it came to having children. Sarah had ceased having her monthly cycle and thus was physically incapable of conceiving children. Yet the miraculous birth of Isaac was forever to stand as a witness that God's covenant children were the result of his mighty hand. Yochanan therefore cuts the ground out from under the Pharisees and Sadducees who claim to stand on the basis of their own flesh, that is, physical lineage, rather than upon God's miraculous and gracious favor. Once again, we may see, even if only very subtly, Matthew's awareness of the Gentile inclusion into the covenant. While covenant nomism, and that's what I explained in the previous uh, paragraph, that the prevailing view was that Jewish people believed they were in by their birth, they were part of the covenant by their birth, and they maintained their covenant status by keeping Torah. That would be nomism. So covenant nomism is that, is that understanding. While covenant nomism may have been the prevailing theology of the sages and thus an effective way to exclude the Gentiles, Matthew already knows that many Gentiles have been drawn into covenant relationship with God through faith in Yeshua. Their status is secure not on the basis of their having been born to Jewish parents, but on the basis of their having been born again by the Spirit through a living and abiding faith in the Messiah. And one wonders if the rebirth imagery that we find, particularly prevalent in, in the Apostolic Scriptures, is not a direct answer to this question of covenant status through birth. To be born from above, to have a new birth, means that you do have a new status. If the rabbis want 
uh, you to be born of, of physical lineage, you're born again. And I'm not saying that gives you physical lineage, but I'm saying the metaphor of being born and therefore entering into a new family and having a new father whose name is Abraham is all directed towards the view of the rabbis that only those with physical lineage could get in or those Gentiles who went through a human uh, ritual. Thus, God's purpose to bless the seed of Abraham is not thwarted by Israel's disobedience. God is able both to change the heart of stone into a heart of flesh and to write the Torah upon the heart in order to affect genuine obedience and faithfulness. Israel will be what God created her to be. What is more, God is able to bring chosen ones from the nations and give them the same heart. Therefore, Israel's disobedience cannot frustrate God's plan. He will have a people that honors him and through whom his power and grace is made known to the whole world. That's what John says. He can raise up children from these stones. You think he's left to you, that he is in a box that you control? Not a chance. You've been listening to the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew. 